This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. European countries like Great Britain are warning of a second wave of COVID-19. And the US is also poised for more coronavirus cases as the Northern Hemisphere heads towards winter. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg how the US is preparing. Also in this episode, we examine evidence that reducing the viral dose of COVID-19 can reduce the severity of the disease. Business reporter Linda Van Tilburg speaks to an international expert, Dr. Monica Gandhi of the University of California, about new studies that have explored whether face masks can really help to protect us from COVID-19. And we take a look at how the creative industries are surviving, with a specific focus on how the South African music industry is adapting to the era of COVID-19. First, the COVID-19 headlines. Iran has recorded its biggest spike in daily cases since the pandemic began, with about 3,700 new infections. The World Health Organization is maintaining its guidance that people newly diagnosed with COVID-19 should isolate for 14 days. It quotes Margaret Harris, a World Health Organization spokeswoman. She says that while the average incubation period is 5 to 6 days, it may last as long as 12 The WHO also recommends that people keep at least one metre apart from each other. Europeans are unwillingly hoarding cash in the lockdown. That's according to the European Central Bank. With economies in lockdown and millions of consumers forced to stay at home, people in the euro area were unable, rather than unwilling, to consume as normal in the first half of the year, it said in its economic bulletin published this week. Economists across the globe are trying to gauge whether the crisis will lead to a prolonged period of weak demand. While the figures suggest that people weren't necessarily holding on to cash for precautionary reasons, the ECB has warned that this could change. The number of deaths linked to COVID-19 in England and Wales rose for the first time since April. Coronavirus-linked deaths rose 27% to 99 in seven days through to September the 11th. That's according to the Office for National Statistics. People in the UK are now being asked to work from home, if possible, as the country prepares to impose new measures on social distancing. UK Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove told Sky News that if it is possible for people to work from home, then they should do so. The country is preparing for six months of tougher restrictions. India, the second worst affected country, has reported just over 75,000 new coronavirus infections, the lowest daily increase since September the 7th. The nation's case tally is now around 5.56 million, while its number of coronavirus-related deaths is just under 89,000. Hong Kong Disneyland Park will officially reopen on Friday, but all guests will be required to undergo temperature screening and wear face masks. Apple CEO Tim Cook says he's been impressed by the ability of employees to operate remotely and predicted that some new work habits will remain after the pandemic. He says that he does not believe Apple will return to the way they were before because they found that there are some things that actually work really well virtually. Cook says that 10% to 15% of Apple employees have gone back to the office 
and he hopes the majority of staff can return to the company's new campus in Silicon Valley sometime next year. As of late Tuesday, the number of COVID-19-related deaths reached just under 966,000. The number of deaths in the U.S. has now exceeded more than 200,000. The United States is the world's hotspot, with just under 7 million cases recorded in the country. The number of cases in South Africa comes in at just under 662,000. And the number of deaths connected to COVID-19 in South Africa is at around 16,000. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Next, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg about how the U.S. is coping as it prepares for a second wave of COVID-19 and elections. The U.S. will top 200,000 deaths from the novel coronavirus in the next few days. It's a devastating milestone that comes only weeks before a presidential election where the virus response is front and center. The U.S. has only 4% of the world's population, but accounts for about 21% of global coronavirus deaths. The disparity underscores America's failure to contain a virus that hit New York City hardest in the spring, then blazed through populous states like Texas, Florida, and California this summer, after New York contained its infection. I spoke with reporter Emma Court about what COVID-19 in the U.S. looks like now, eight months after it was first found on American soil, and what we have learned about it since. So we're about to hit a pretty dark milestone in the U.S., 200,000 deaths from COVID-19. I was wondering, could you maybe just give us a little color on this grim statistic? It's honestly a point I think a lot of people hoped we would never get to. And I think the fear now is, where are we going to be at the end of the year? You know, how many deaths are we going to be talking about in a couple of months' time? I like to think of the pandemic in in terms of phases. So earlier this year, we saw New York City get hit really hard. We saw New Jersey have really high numbers. We saw Seattle get hit really hard early in the pandemic. And more recently over the summer, the burden of the virus really shifted towards these, you know, southern and, and southwestern states that dominated the news, right? We had, you know, Texas, Arizona, Florida, California, really the virus sort of blazed through those areas. And, you know, fast forwarding to now, to the fall, uh, you know, we've been talking about the fall as a time of great concern for months now because schools are reopening. We're seeing colleges reopening. Um, you know, many in several parts of the country, the temperatures are getting a lot cooler. People are, you know, moving their socializing indoors where obviously there's a higher risk of the virus being transmitted. So when you think about these different phases of, of the virus. Right now, we're a little bit at a, at a inflection point and we don't really know what's going to happen. We're seeing those hot spots from the summer really dying down and that's reflected in overall the case numbers declining. We've seen deaths decline as well. We have more understanding of the public health measures that are needed to try to stop the virus from spreading. But, you know, whether we see all this happen for a third time again is really kind of up in the air. Now, 200,000 is it's a very grim number, but is there any doubt as to its accuracy? There's a lot of doubt. Uh, I, I think we can all 
agree that 200,000 is a floor for death. So we know, you know, when we hit this 200,000 number, it'll be 200,000 official deaths. But we also know that our, our system hasn't, through the course of the pandemic, been very good at recognizing all coronavirus deaths for a variety of different reasons. Um, and so we know, for instance, looking at CDC data, that we have this marker called you know, excess mortality. And basically, you look at historically how many deaths you've had in a given year, and then you look at how many deaths you've actually had this year. And we know we've already seen more than 200,000 deaths occur this year than we were expecting. And so that might not all be COVID-19, by the way. Um, you know, people were avoiding medical care for a long time because they were afraid of going to these virus-ridden hospitals. They didn't want to get sick. We know people died of heart attacks, things like that at home, unfortunately. So this number isn't, you know, it's not 100% clear exactly how this pans out. But we do know that, uh, unfortunately, likely more than 200,000 people have already died from this virus. I was wondering if you might go into how does perhaps this 200,000 number or where the U.S. is right now with COVID, how does this relate to testing rates in the U.S.? Testing has remained a challenge in the U.S., and it does obscure our view of the virus when we aren't testing enough. We actually know testing has been declining uh, each week since the summer, and we're doing about, you know, a million tests uh, less than we were doing in July of the summer. So uh, it's unclear whether when we see cases decline, we can be certain that it's entirely because cases are declining and not because uh, we're doing less testing. So as always, that remains kind of a fog through which we're viewing these numbers and, and we can't be totally sure. We have some other metrics we can turn to to try to make sense of these numbers like test positivity rates. If test positivity rates are pretty high, as we've seen, you know, just a couple months ago in the U.S., we know for sure that we're probably not testing enough, but it's hard to know until you really see all this stuff pan out in terms of hospitalization and death rates. And of course, the issue with that is these numbers come a lot down the road. And by the time you know you're having a problem, you're, you're kind of late to be doing anything to really stop it quickly. Now, you've mentioned that the U.S. is really at an inflection point, And I was wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit more about that in terms of the trajectory of the virus. Coming off the summer, as you were mentioning, into the fall, what are the major concerns going into the next several months or even, say, into 2021 in terms of what might be happening with the trajectory of the virus in the U.S.? I think it can be really hard to get a sense of where the U.S. is in this outbreak because it's all relative, right? So things appear to be on the upswing from where they were this summer, but things were really quite bad this summer. I mean, if you look at, you know, for instance, the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a, an independent nonprofit, maintains this map of COVID-19 hotspots in the U.S. If you look at the map, 
today, you know, as of the time we taped this, 33 states were considered hot spots. I mean, this the country is, you know, a, a massive red right now, if you look at this map. So it's important to note, like, we are still in the trenches here. You know, things appear to be getting better, but it's all relative to where we were before. One of the big concerns about this fall, again, is more institutions are reopening. The weather in parts of the country is getting cooler, people meeting indoors. And then, of course, there's the fact that, you know, traditionally, we can have really bad flu seasons and the symptoms of flu are extremely similar to the symptoms of COVID-19. And in a country where the medical infrastructure has already been placed under strain by COVID-19, the chances of having a bad flu season are, are concerning, to say the least. I mean, we've seen from other parts of the world that uh, the flu season's have actually been milder in many cases because people are doing these things like social distancing and wearing masks. So we know these measures, if we undertake them, will not only prevent COVID-19 from spreading, but also other concerns like flu. But again, it it's, is a concerning time of year. There were beliefs that summer would be a better time for the, the coronavirus crisis, and that just didn't turn out to be true. And And that's not what happened. So let's look big picture. What does this number, 200,000, say, do you think, about the U.S.'s overall response to COVID-19 throughout this year? It says we have done a very poor job of containing this virus. You know, we have 4% of the world's population and about 21% of global coronavirus deaths. I mean, this is something that has to be taken really seriously, uh, you know, especially considering where these deaths have occurred and who these deaths have affected. We know people with other medical conditions have disproportionately died from this virus. We know elderly people have died from this virus. We know people of color have disproportionately died from this virus. We also know geographically that the virus deaths have been, you know, especially concentrated in just about 12 states and 70 percent, more than 70 percent of virus deaths in the U.S. happen in just 12 states, including some of the names that you might assume, you know, New York, California, Texas. It's really striking when you think about this 200,000 number in more death. I mean, that is a really, that's a large number. And and it's an amount of deaths that weren't, we didn't expect to happen this year, right? I mean, this is a new pandemic. Um, I, I think it can be helpful to think about it in terms of even just cities in the U.S. So, um, you know, Yonkers, New York has a population of 200,000 people. Huntsville, Alabama has a population of 200,000 people. I mean, we're talking about an entire city dying, basically, if you, if you think about it in, in just geographic terms. Is there any good news for folks looking for some regarding COVID-19 in the U.S.? I think you can see good news in a couple of places. I mean, from a public health perspective, I would say the good news is we do know what the right thing is to do, even though it's hard to do and it's hard to sustain for such a long period of time. We're now eight months into a virus that was first confirmed on U.S. soil back in late January, right? I think it is, it's almost become a bit of a cliche at this point. We know you're supposed to wear a mask. We know you're supposed to social distance, wash your hands, all that good stuff. But we do know that. We have that information and we have the ability, you know, most of us hopefully have the ability to adhere to these things. Not everyone because of their circumstances and jobs and 
things like that. But intrinsically, that's positive because that's information that we can use and we can put to good use. There's also encouraging news, I think, on the vaccine front, although it still very much remains to be seen whether these experimental drugs are going to be effective and safe for Americans and and for the global population. I think there's a real effort from the private sector to try to find a solution to this. But I, I think we've seen the public health response to this lag behind. And what does that say about America? I think it says a lot about, you know, where we invest, where our priorities have been historically. Um, and it gives us the opportunity to do better. The wearing of face masks to safeguard against COVID-19 is controversial. They can be uncomfortable, glasses steam up, and many question whether there's any real use in having them. In the next interview, you'll hear compelling reasons why masks should be essential wear until COVID-19 has been tamed. Linda van Tilburg of BizNews speaks to Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious diseases physician at the University of California. Most of us have become used to breathe through a couple layers of cloth when we meet people in larger groups. And it is mandatory in South Africa to wear a mask in public during the coronavirus pandemic. While most of us have accepted that this is what we have to do, there has been non-compliance. And a man was shot by a soldier in Limpopo after an argument over masks. The reasoning up to now is that masks may not protect the wearer, but could protect the people you come into contact with by blocking larger cough or sneeze droplets. But scientists have now come up with a new provocative idea, as the New York Times described it, that masks expose the wearer to just enough of the virus to spark a protective immune response. Business spoke to Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician at the University of California in San Francisco, who is one of the authors of a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine. She said there was growing evidence that face masks could lower the severity of the coronavirus for those who wear them. So, you know, this is really a perspective, and I just want to stress that because it was really putting other people's research together and coming up with a perspective and a hypothesis. But the hypothesis that we put forth in in the New England Journal paper is that looking back uh, on all animal models for viral diseases, it seems that the viral inocula or dose that you get in is proportional to the severity of disease. So meaning if you get a higher dose, you get more sick. And if you get a lower dose, you get less sick. And we've actually known that in animals for since 1938, there's been papers on this. And then even with SARS-CoV-2, what causes COVID-19, there was a hamster model that hamsters get more sick if you give more virus. Now, how does that relate to masks? Well, masks do filter out the majority of viral particles. It, it depends on the mask. Good cloth masks that are two-ply or surgical masks filter out, at least from other viruses, about 80 per 80, 85% of viral particles. And so you will get less of a dose in if you wear a mask. Then the next question we had from that virologic evidence is, okay, do we have epidemiologic evidence? Have we seen that in masked conditions, people have gotten less severe 
disease over time with SARS-CoV-2 because there was a hamster study that said if you mask up the hamsters, they'll get less severe disease. But have we seen that in people? And so then we started looking at outbreak of COVID-19. And the weird thing is that, you know, 40% of people just baseline, the CDC says, don't have any symptoms. They're asymptomatic. So is that proportion of asymptomatic infection, people who don't get severe disease, increased with masking? And the first example that we bring up is this cruise ship example um, that this Argentinian cruise ship that was published in uh, BMJ Thorax, they gave masks to all their staff and they gave masks to all the passengers as soon as an outbreak was detected on board. And it's kind of a closed setting, so it's a nice example. And the proportion of asymptomatic infection was 81%, much higher than this typical 40%. And then when we look at food processing plants across the United States, there was a lot of illness at the beginning. These were kept open, but masks were mandated and handed out. And the proportion of asymptomatic infection later in food processing plant outbreaks was 95%. And then we're seeing this again and again. People are contacting me and saying, wow, like once we started putting masks on everyone in the nursing home, we have a lot less severe disease. So it is observational evidence. We want to stress that it is a hypothesis, but it seems that masks may reduce the severity of disease. And then taking it one step further, and it's sort of the transitive property of the quality. There's been some very nice studies over the last four weeks, including from Sweden and UW, University of Washington and UCSF and multiple places around the world that even asymptomatic infection can give you strong T-cell immunity. And of course, T-cells are the arm of the immune response that actually really um, controls viral infections. The antibodies can are more fleeting, um, which is what we've seen with these serology studies. And so then we just took it one step further and said, okay, so if masks drive up the p- number of people getting mild infection and mild infection, gives you immunity, could masks give you that immunity until we get to a vaccine? And then I need to end this saying, we think this is a hypothesis. It's really, you know, kind of a provocative theory and it will be hard to prove. Definitively, we can only do studies that say, oh, look, when we started mask mandates in X city, people got less severe disease before and after comparisons and we're starting those studies. But we'll never be able to truly do a randomized trial, mask half the population, mask, unmask half the population, because we do believe masks are effective and that would be unethical. So it is, I have to leave it with, it's a provocative hypothesis, I think. If we look at the beginning of the outbreak in countries like the United Kingdom, the healthcare workers, they were most affected. Could this also be because of a higher viral load? Yes. Yes, I think that healthcare workers are a great example that Wuhan, New York City, UK, Italy, all at the beginning, the healthcare workers got more sick. And then we started universally masking. This was like put into play for healthcare workers earlier than the general population. We we don't even like enter the hospital grounds without putting on a mask. It's mandated. And actually masks are provided, which I think is a very big point. I think actually mask provision helps increase mask compliance. But we started universally masking in mid mid to late March. 
And yes, we have seen that healthcare workers are not getting infected to the same degree. And moreover, there was a CDC study that showed that healthcare workers actually had quite high seroprevalence rates, meaning we may have been infected, we didn't even know it because of this driving up of asymptomatic infections. This was a September 4th CDC MMWR study that said that healthcare workers had more disease than we thought. And so that is, I think, another, again, observational evidence that it could be in settings that universally mask, we saw the severity of disease going down. And as we put PPE up, people did better, you know, as we've driven the prediction up. I will say that Asian countries, because they're used to to universally masking since SARS, they never had an issue with PPE. That was like the first thing they did. Taiwan mass-produced masks for their public and mandated masks on March 6th. That's very early. And they've had less than 10 deaths to their pandemic in a country of 23 million people. I mean, this is what we call ecologic data, country-level data, but it's very suggestive. Well, if you look at South Africa, I don't know if you about the statistics, we have more than 600,000 cases, but the death rate is actually really low. You know, masks were compulsory right from the beginning. I think that's a very good point, that we actually thought Africa and India both would be terrible centers of death, terrible, because of the high mortality and the high population density and the failure to be able to totally lock down and all of that. And this is the simplest, cheapest public health measure you could think of. Everyone has a piece of cloth at home. Everyone, you know, can put that cloth over their mouth and nose. And as it has been implicated in why sub-Saharan Africa had not been the wave of death uh, that we thought it would be, and very gratefully so. When people have masks, they come really up close to each other. We don't socially distance enough. Is there not a problem of a false sense of security? We do not know relative importance of social distancing versus masks. Right now, the recommendation is absolute do both. And that has to be our public health recommendation. Now, there is a modeling study that is under review at UCSF at Nature Medicine. I was not uh, involved that looks at the relative merits of each and finds masks more protective and social distancing. There was a Swiss study in, published in Clinical Infectious Diseases of two Swiss cohorts, and I can actually send you all these references, where one set of soldiers got 30% illness because there was no social distancing. The other set of soldiers either social distanced or masked, either, not both, and there was 0% illness. So we do not know the relative merits of each. And at this point, the recommendation has to be both until we get more data. Um, while I have you on the line, you are an HIV specialist. And we also yes. thought in Africa, and particularly in South Africa, with its high incidence of HIV AIDS, that COVID-19 would be an added burden. You know, it's very interesting that we thought that HIV would be a major risk factor because it's an immunosuppressing condition and also because people with HIV can get bad influenza outcomes, for example. But in general, to put a lot of data together in from Europe and, in, and the U.S. at least, we have not seen an increase in susceptibility or an increase in severe outcomes with COVID-19 among people of HIV. There was one analysis from Western Cape Town that showed that HIV slightly increased the risk of mortality, but it was far dwarfed by other comorbidities that are more typically associated with COVID-19 mortality, like age, 
uh, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. So because of that, we are starting to think that HIV is not a major risk factor for COVID. And in fact, that is the current dogma in the U.S. We have put it out in guidelines that we do not think that HIV is a risk factor for either susceptibility or severe outcomes. That is a relief because we were also very worried about the overlap of the two pandemics. I think the concern is actually more the other way. Is the disruptions of COVID going to massively affect HIV treatment outcomes, prevention outcomes, testing susceptibility, that is what those of us in the HIV community are most worried about. Yeah, in South Africa, they were worried that people would not go to the clinics. Um, yes, exactly. And, and in fact, there was a UNAIDS model that modeled that we may have, you know, 500,000 excess deaths from AIDS next year, just truly because of COVID. But it is a very depressing model. And it's all the disruptions in health systems, especially for those with HIV there going to clinic, it means a lot. Like it's part of our the ethos. I am profoundly concerned about the impact of COVID on HIV outcomes. And I think that that's where those of us in HIV are now turning our minds about how to mitigate the terrible impact of the COVID-19 necessary response on HIV. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Coming up, Gwen Anzel, an associate of the Gordon Institute for Business Science, and a jazz specialist speaks to Linda van Tilburg of BizNews about how the South African music industry is adapting in the era of COVID-19. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. With the pandemic shutting down the music industry, who rely on live concerts for a large part of their income, many began turning to live streaming as a source of income and to stay connected to their audiences. It has been seen by many as a salvation for the industry, but how successful has the adaptation been in South Africa? For some musicians, it has worked well, including for musician and producer Master KG, whose hit with Nongkeba called Jerusalemma became a viral hit. A survey has been conducted by Concert South Africa, a joint South African-Norwegian development project, to determine whether the music industry has adapted in South Africa. One of the researchers from the Gordon Institute for Business at the University of Pretoria, Gwen Ansel, said it revealed that the great digital divide in South Africa had seriously hampered the ability of musicians to use live streaming as an alternative to concerts. We actually did a very early snapshot survey in July of what was happening in this country. And we were very aware when we did that that in fact we were coming in at such an early stage and we saw online that new companies were joining and trying this all the time. So we have basically done a snapshot survey of the first dozen or so companies, including some who were legacy operators who'd been doing this for five years or more, and a much larger number who had actually joined in direct response to COVID. And this is all to do with the live streaming of music, not the live streaming of other activities because of Concert SA's mandate. And what have you found? Have South Africans embraced this idea of live streaming music or concerts? Well, the idea has been embraced, but I think there has been a lot of romanticization about what its immediate short-term benefits will be. And I also think there's quite a lot that we don't know about the best ways to market this in South Africa 
about whether there are different marketing and indeed production requirements for different genres. And in fact, there has been very little taking into account of the fact that our domestic audience is, of course, riven by a massive digital divide where the vast majority of people in South Africa may not have um, devices, may not have easy Wi-Fi access, and sometimes may not even have electricity, so that the local market for local music is very much diminished by this. And also, of course, the capacity of musicians, because not all musicians live in wealthy areas and well-resourced areas to actually participate in this. So I think one of the things it is revealing is the extent to which South Africa's digital divide is a constraint on COVID recovery and resilience in the creative industries. And there's the cost of data and the cost of Wi-Fi as well. Yes, indeed. Even where people can access it, it is expensive But far more concerning is the number of people in this country who can't access it. But would those people have been able to afford concert tickets in any way? Quite often, yes. I mean, I've been involved in a range of researches around this. And one of the things that I think is not widely understood is that there are vast and largely undocumented music circuits in this country, in genres, for example, like traditional music and like gospel music which have been going on and flourishing very, very healthily with ordinary working class participants and audiences who have not been spending a huge amount. They have been spending something, but who've not been spending a huge amount. And of course, all that has stopped. I was reading something in relation to another survey just this morning from someone who said their main business was touring Isikatamiya groups, that Zulu music groups, all around the country. And he said, and now the entire fraternity is sitting at home wearing masks. So let's not say that we're talking here about high priced concerts with big popular or classical names. This is also all kinds of live music activities happening in taverns, happening in small bars and restaurants, happening in community halls, as well as the stuff that we tend to think of, which happens in rather fancier and more expensive venues. So first of all, they can't record, they can't do that kind of live streaming, and they, you know, they can't reach their audience through live streaming like some of the international stars have. I've seen this one um, platform called Fortnite that hosted a live rap concert that was viewed by 30 million viewers. So are viewers tuning more into live streaming, do you think? Well, where they can, I think, yes, that is the answer. But given that South Africa does not only have a digital divide internally, but also exists as part of a global digital divide, one of the things this could very well do is cement the control of the large international live streamers and the large international live streaming app developers who are concentrated in fewer than a dozen countries, and one of them is not South Africa. And of course, the other thing is, even where artists are able to do it and access it, it's very much like writing books. You get a few cents per live stream. So you have to amass a very large number of hits in order to earn immediate income. And I think the other important distinction that we have to draw here is between immediate income and long tail income. We know and we have known for many years now that for genre musics, and let's say that most South African indigenous musics are in niche genres, um, but so is jazz, which is actually my music specialism. 
Um, the main earnings are from your long tail. It's a few sales of a niche product, but over a very long period of time. Now, that is very good for the music overall, but it's not very good for an artist who now has zero income, zero ability to pay school fees, pay rent or anything else. So I think the long term potential for live streaming, even in South Africa and even with all the disadvantages that I've recounted, I think that long tail potential is still very, very powerful. But when people need a supplement to make up for income they've lost in the last six months, it's not happening. Well, there was one great success, which is Jerusalem. Does that translate into money for the artists? Well, the artists involved in that will, of course, receive royalties per play. And they have probably received enough royalties for that to be lucrative to them to the point where the vocalist there has just released a second single, hoping to capitalize on the success of Jerusalem. So, yes, but you need massive sales for that. And not everybody is going to make those. And not everyone is in music to do that kind of thing. Normally, people are in music to express their creativity. And the fact is, under non-COVID circumstances, they can also earn a living. But COVID circumstances have made that very, very much harder. What kind of support do you think can be given to them? Okay, well, our study, I should say, was not of individual musicians, but of live streaming platforms. And these are essentially the venues. Venues are incredibly important to the health of a music ecosystem. If you need an audience, you need a place for that audience to gather. So what has happened is that a number of venues which um, hosted live music have themselves attempted to pivot to live, to be platforms for live streaming. And they have, in some cases, attracted corporate sponsorship for that. In some cases, they have received support from the body which undertook the research concert South Africa to pay artists. But where they haven't, where people have been doing live streaming on a fairly solid equity model. That is to say, everybody involved takes the risk and hopes that they will get something back off ticket sales. Again, they're mostly still waiting. They have received small amounts. The sample artists that we looked at were racking up somewhat under one third of what they would normally earn from a live show at the same type of venue. So again, because of South Africa's digital divide, Someone might go to a live venue and it wouldn't be too expensive for them. But to live stream and to make that worthwhile, they might have to spend a 100 rands on a ticket. And that is somewhat more expensive for them. And additionally, of course, let us remember that an awful lot of genres of music previously made their live events successful because of large amounts of input sponsorship, media sponsorship, liquor companies, other companies which used music as a vehicle to attract people to their brand. Now, of course, all of those companies have suffered massively from COVID as well and are less able to put in sponsorship. So in terms of support, it is limited. But one of the things they desperately need is um, support. And that support can come from a range of areas. Um, if we're looking at government support, then there have been various government schemes, two waves now of support specifically for people who've lost work in the arts because of COVID, but also for small businesses who've lost work and various things. These are, like many other things, sponsored by governments, beset by bureaucracy and a particular problem for the performance arts. 
is that most performance artists are working on a project basis. They're freelancers. Contracts are very often informal. It might be a WhatsApp message on your phone. Without that type of formal paper documentation, they don't qualify for relief. So the government relief at the moment is not appreciative of the realities of the informal freelance project-based modes of working that most music performers work through, and also of the informal status of a lot of venues. You know, a church which regularly puts on gospel shows and pays gospel artists wouldn't qualify for any of these forms of relief because it's not a registered performance venue. And for artists the communication around relief and the extent of paper bureaucracy that it requires has been a major stumbling block. What needs to be done to solve this? Is there any way forward, do you think? Well, I would say there are things that government can do that don't actually involve the same amount of cash grants, because one of the things that's been really striking in all the survey work that we've been doing is that people want resources in order to work. They don't want to stay at home and just be given handouts. Obviously, they need to eat. Obviously, the kids need to go to school. So there is a need for cash. But people want to work. So, for example, suggestions that we got from performers and venues was that national facilities, the South African Broadcasting Corporation studios, the state theatres, all of those could be open to assist artists who can't live stream from their homes to live stream that there could be more training and upskilling so that artists are capacitated to know how to live stream and how to market their live stream work. Um, given that open air performance is clearly a major option for South Africa because of our climate, the licensing requirements and the restrictions and the bureaucracy around holding an open air event in a city could perhaps re be relaxed, not in terms of health and safety, obviously, but in terms of the costs of licensing fees and things like that. There are things that could be done that are in-kind assistance that do not require major cash money, but that could be an enormous help, creating once more the ecosystem within which music can happen. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. And that brings your Inside COVID-19 to a close. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.